Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The recent National Defense Industrial Strategy, all 59 pages of it, highlighted the erosion of U.S. industry's capacity for making things. That includes printed circuit boards at the complex end of electronics, the type of parts needed for advanced weapon systems or for artificial intelligence processing. Now there are signs that the domestic PCP industry is awakening. We get a rundown on recent developments from the executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America, David Schild. Mr. Schild, good to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you. Safe to say that these boards we're talking about, we make the simple ones maybe here, but the complex ones have moved offshore and maybe come back with U.S. circuits on them, but don't originate here, and that's changing. You know, the majority of the global printed circuit board market has moved over the last three decades to Asia. About 90% of the world's boards are made there. About 56% of the world's boards are made in mainland China. We invented PCBs in the United States, as we did semiconductors, but we've lost the manufacturing capacity and leadership that we once had. High-end boards that you would find in aerospace and defense applications are still made here in the United States, very often because it's required so by the Department of Defense. And what about other parts of the high-end industry, say, like I mentioned, artificial intelligence processing of intense GPU chips and so forth, which end up in big data farms here. Are those circuit boards from here? Some might be. As you mentioned, the recent National Industrial Base study highlights our dependency on foreign sourcing for critical microelectronics and the fact that so many of our complex defense and aerospace systems depend on these technologies. We made a significant investment, Tom, with the CHIPS Act, a $52 billion down payment on semiconductors. We need to think about the rest of the technology stack, the integrated circuit substrates and print circuit boards that support those microchips. And we need to have a whole ecosystem approach so that we're not simply sending things back and forth across oceans and not building secure and resilient supply chains. Now, the Pentagon did give a big award recently. Tell us more about that to a domestic company for complex boards. Which armed force made that and who did it go to? Yeah, two years ago, the president invoked the Defense Production Act and designated microelectronics, specifically PCBs and integrated circuit substrates, as a critical national technology. What that does is give the Pentagon a sort of hunting license to spend and invest in those technologies. The DPAI awards recently were to Calumet Electronics and GreenSource LLC. Those boards will end up in high-end defense applications. It was about $85 million dollars. That's a good start, but of course we need to do more through the Pentagon and the DPAI authority. And do we also, though, need to build up U.S. capacity for non-defense for the dual-use idea? Because that's an economic incentive because the Defense Department is not the majority volume buyer of complex boards. You know, our homes and cars are filled with multi-layer boards with really complex circuits on them. That's absolutely right. Only about 4% of the global market is aerospace and defense. And so Anything that you use today that really runs on electricity is going to have a PCB inside of it. The majority of those boards, from dishwashers to garage doors, are still made overseas. And what many people don't realize is that once we're outside of the defense market, critical infrastructure applications, think banking, think the power grid, think medical devices, many of those microelectronics are entirely sourced from foreign countries. I think that's an unhealthy and risky dependency. And when the DOD does make an award, like the one you mentioned to the two companies there, they run into the challenge that faces so many of the defense industrial-based players, and that is they need steady demand signals 
from the Pentagon and not the stop and start or we'll make these and then we'll go away for 20 years like we did with fighter planes and this kind of thing so that companies have an incentive to keep those lines and that expertise going. Absolutely. You know, this kind of manufacturing needs the steady demand signal that you talked about. It's no different than making military engines, for example. We need to keep the talent onshore. We need to keep the facilities and the technology onshore. The capacity for surge for the ability to ramp up when there might be a crisis. And we've seen recently what happens when the United States has to export large amounts of high-tech defense systems, the demand that that places on our existing domestic capacity. We absolutely have to have more of what we make and depend on made here in America. And we're speaking with David Schild. He's executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. And there has been some work in Congress recently on dependence on China, and a lot of fronts, including one in the microelectronics area, which we already had some sanctions against already. Yeah, the uh, Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, led so well by Representatives Gallagher and Krishnamurthy, recently released a list of 150 imperatives to maintain America's technological leadership. Right at the top of the list was increasing our capacity for microelectronics manufacturing, including printed circuit boards and integrated circuit substrates. Well, why did all these things leave the country in the first place? Well, I think, you know, there's been a love affair with offshoring and with chasing high margins and low costs by foreign manufacturing. I think we went a little bit overboard. What's happened to the global portfolio when it comes to manufacturing, it's become very unbalanced. And that's why you hear so much referencing to friendshoring, bringing things closer to our shores, and of course, reshoring, bringing things back to the United States. We saw during the COVID-19 pandemic what a reliance on one single point of manufacturing can mean to customers. And we see empty store shelves. We saw the inability to get pickup trucks, for example, because we were waiting on critical microelectronics. I don't think anybody wants to wait on critical defense systems or on the things that power our everyday lives. Well, if you look at California and the Pentagon loves to talk about Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, you hear this term. And it's not Silicon Valley. It's Software Valley. It used to be Silicon Valley. But the fact is making circuits and making circuit boards is chemistry it's water, it's air products and different gases, it's manufacturing, and it has emissions, and it has water discharge, and it has a lot of expensive factories that need to be built in areas where you have huge degrees of regulation, very high labor costs. Beyond the Pentagon desire, there are structural issues in the United States. Certainly, you make a great point, Tom, about our need to be competitive, not just at the federal but at the state level. And it reminds me that when manufacturing capacity goes overseas, we also lose intellectual know-how. So often, research and development is co-located with production. And we need to invent the next generation of printed circuit boards and substrates to go with the next generation of chips. They're going to be made in places like New York, Ohio, and Arizona. Yes, you mentioned New York. There's recently been some announcements that there's going to be a new board manufacturing near Syracuse, New York. And New York is a state that has been losing jobs, losing population, and losing industry for a long time. You know, light bulbs and everything all the way up the chain. And so what happened in New York to cause someone to invest there for printed circuits? Well, 
I think you see in 26 states around the country companies that are making printed circuit boards and integrated circuit substrates. In New York specifically, TTM Technologies is making a significant investment in partnership with the state of New York to expand their capacity. And what I think is happening, Tom, is that states are looking at the sort of silicon gold rush that's occurring in Arizona, that's occurring in Texas, that's occurring in Ohio. And they're saying, how can we be a part of this manufacturing revolution, this reshoring And New York seemed to have a little bit of vision there, and they're willing to partner with uh, TTM. So we're excited for that, and I don't think they'll be the last state to introduce incentives. People look to the federal government. That demand signal that the CHIPS Act created, I think it's going to be replicated at the state and local level. David Schild is executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.